Morning, everyone. So um, some of you maybe have seen this or heard about it um, recently, depending on, you know, your past church connections or, you know, how much you're on Instagram or whatever. If not, that's okay, too. Um, about four weeks ago, there's a well-known author and former pastor, Joshua Harris. Um, he used to pastor Covenant Life Church in Gaithersburg, Maryland. Uh, so he announced that he and his wife were getting divorced. So here's what he wrote. Um, we're writing to share the news that we are separating and we'll continue our life together as friends. In recent years, some significant changes have taken place in both of us. It is with sincere love for one another and understanding of our unique story as a couple that we are moving forward with this decision. We hope to create a generous and supportive future for each other and for our three amazing children in the years ahead. Thank you for your understanding and for respecting our privacy during a difficult time. And then about a week later, um, Harris announced this on Instagram. He said, my heart is full of gratitude. I wish you could see all the messages people sent me after the announcement of my divorce. They are expressions of love, though they are saddened or even strongly disapprove of the decision. The information that was left out of our announcement is that I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people tell me that there is a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there now. Martin Luther said that the entire life of believers should be repentance. There's beauty in that sentiment, regardless of your view of God. I have lived in repentance for the last several years, repenting of my self-righteousness, the teaching of my books. But I specifically want to add to this list now, to the LGBTQ plus community, I want to say that I am sorry for the views that I taught in my books and as a pastor regarding sexuality. I regret standing against marriage equality for not affirming you and your place in the church and for any ways that my writing and speaking contributed to a culture of exclusion and bigotry. I hope you can forgive me. To my Christian friends, I am grateful for your prayers. Don't take it personally if I don't immediately return calls. I can't join in your mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. I don't view this moment negatively. I feel very much alive and awake and surprisingly hopeful. I believe with my sister Julian that all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. And then not long after that, um, Marty Sampson, who's a very well-known worship leader, um, songwriter with Hillsong. He's the one that wrote the song Oceans, um, if you're familiar with that song. He wrote, time for some real talk. I'm genuinely losing my faith, and it doesn't bother me. Like what bothers me now is nothing. I am so happy now, so at peace with the world. It's crazy. This is a soapbox moment, so here I go. How many preachers fall? Many. No one talks about it. How many miracles happen? Not many. No one talks about it. Why is the Bible full of contradictions? No one talks about it. How can God be love yet send four billion people to a place all because they don't believe? No one talks about it. Just parenthesis. We can and we should and we must talk about these things here. Okay? We have and we will continue to. He goes on. Christians can be the most judgmental people on the planet. No 
argument there. They can also be some of the most beautiful and loving people, but it's not for me. I am not in anymore. I want genuine truth, not the I just believe it kind of truth. Science keeps piercing the truth of every religion. Lots of things help people change their lives, not just one version of God. Got so much more to say, but for me, I'm keeping it real. Unfollow if you want. Um, Anyway, he goes on. So apparently he clarified some days later that he's not renounced his faith, but his faith is on incredibly shaky ground. Okay? So why do I share these things? To encourage spiritual voyeurism? No. Okay, I think that's one of the dangers in the social media age is that we can... That's just not healthy at all because it's almost like um, easy gossip, like easy morsels and tidbits that are so available. That's not at all why I mention this. In fact, I hesitated to even share this because of the problem of, you know, evangelical celebrity culture that can kind of contribute to these things, you know, putting people up on a pedestal and their falls can do exponential damage and, and so forth. So that's not why I share it. I'm also not sharing it to publicly castigate or judge or pretend to know the motives of these guys or what led to this, okay? I'm not going to spin some, you know, psychological kind of reconstruction of what happened to get them there. No. This saddens me, and I imagine it saddens you as well. It sobers me. Does it sober you? Like, better people than us have fallen. I mean, that's a weird statement, maybe. But people who've had good theology and, you know, seem sincere and on and on, we could say things like this. So this kind of thing makes me want to cling to Christ and battle sin more vigilantly. Like, take care lest there be in any of you and me a sinful, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God encourage one another. Like, we need each other if we're going to persevere. Encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you would be heartened by the deceitfulness of sin. So, why do I share these things? Really to draw attention to two things as we head into our passage. We are not playing with a net, folks. Like, life is for real. Your faith or your struggles or your doubts or your unbelief matters. It matters today. And today is going to have impact on tomorrow. That's why Hebrews warns against drift before it talks about taking care. And then secondly, What's underneath the surface of your life matters. What's underneath the surface of your profession, your confession matters. Your heart, your motives, my heart, my motives. And that's actually where this passage this morning ends. And that's where we're going to end this morning. And everything in between is so vital to us to embrace, to trust Jesus Cling to him and follow him. 
Because I don't know about you, but I want to finish well, don't you? Like it's, it's scary, it's sad how many people have made a shipwreck of their faith. And I'm sure you have people really close to you that have gone through this. And, you know, the point is not to wag the finger, but to, like, look in and tremble. Like, oh, God, keep me. It's so precious that now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling, that that's true. So we're in, we're at the end of this brief series in the Gospel of John, looking at the glory of Christ. Okay, three weeks. Glory in the flesh, glory in the wine, and then I was going to call it glory in the blood, but as I look more at chapter 12, we're going to call it glory in the shame. Okay, I think that accurate, more accurately captures what's going on here. Um, so if you weren't here, two weeks ago, glory in the flesh, chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. So God has revealed his glory in creation. We can hear his glory, the, the skies, the stars, everything is telling of the glory of God. Like all these crazy animals, all of the stuff that God has just imagined and made by mere words say how creative and powerful and glorious he is. And then he revealed himself by words through prophets, right? And then ultimately he revealed his glory, who he is, his nature, his character, his beauty in his son. God took on flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, the Word, Jesus, has made him known, has explained him. So if you want to know God, look at Jesus. And then, so that's the glory in the flesh. And then last week, the glory in the wine. Okay, we looked at the story of the wedding at Cana. And the glory that's revealed there is not just manifested in the miracle of turning water to wine, though that certainly reveals Jesus' glory. But even greater than that, the glory was, a, was revealed in this living parable that Jesus came to bring spiritual newness. Okay? And he is the bridegroom that provides. He won't fail to provide everything that's needed for the wedding feast of the Lamb. His hour hadn't come, and he was thinking of that hour when his mother said, they ran out of wine. So it was all about his hour, and why did he choose stone purification pots? Because he came to cleanse the temple. That's the next story. He came to cleanse human hearts that can't be cleansed by ritual washing they can only be cleansed by the blood that we sung about. What can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Okay? So, um, Carson kind of summarizes really well. Jesus is the bridegroom, right? That's the big point, the, the revelation of God's glory in that story. And he says, as such, Jesus will supply all the wine that is needed for the messianic banquet. But his hour has not yet come. 
As this story unfolds, he graciously makes good the deficiencies of the unknown bridegroom of John 2 in anticipation of the perfect way he himself will fill the role of the messianic bridegroom. What did Jesus do? He came to die, to lay down his life for his bride and to make her pure and clean and to prepare her for himself for the future wedding day when he returns. His love is like a marriage, right? And he laid down his life for us, the church, the bride of Christ. So this week, glory and the shame, chapter 12 of John's gospel. So if you're using the Pew Bible, you can find our passage on page 899. We're not going to be able to overturn every rock. There's so much in these 24 verses, but um, we will certainly see a glimpse of the glory of Christ here. <clears throat> as we walk through it. So the first point, point um, looking at verses 20 to 23, the hour has come. So John 12, beginning in verse 20, this is a turning point in the Gospel of John. So let's begin in verse 20. Now among those who went up to the feast, went up to worship at the feast, which is the Passover, if you look back at verse 1, were some Greeks. So these Greeks came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked Philip, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So they wanted to have the opportunity to sit down and talk with him. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified. So what's going on here? These Greeks that approach Philip and ask to see Jesus doesn't mean that they were from Greece, okay? In that day and time and in their mindset, there were Jews and Gentiles, okay? So Gentiles from the Greek-speaking world, um, that was kind of the common language at the time. So the fact that they are coming up to worship means that they were God-fearing Gentiles, Okay, so they had respect for Yahweh. And you know there was the court of the Gentiles in the temple, so they could approach this far and no farther. There was a dividing wall, so they couldn't go where um, you know, Jews who were richly clean could go, but they could go to the court of the Gentiles. So they had this respect for Yahweh, and they came to worship. But then they're never referred to again in this account. There's no like, answer to their question. But somehow, if you notice what's going on here, their approach triggers Jesus to say that his hour has come. So why do you think that is? Why would the approach of the Greeks asking to see Jesus trigger? Okay, he said, my hour has not yet come. It's not yet come. Now it's come. Well, remember, what does his hour refer to? It refers to his glorification, his death and resurrection and ascension or exaltation. Okay? So Jesus came, John 1. He came to his own, the Jews, and his own people didn't receive him. But he also came not just for his people. He came for the whole world. John 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that Whoever believes 
will not perish, but have everlasting life. And then in John 10, when he's talking about being the good shepherd, he says, I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. Sheep from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. So if these Greeks' request is going to be granted in the deepest sense to really see Jesus, he had to go to his hour and not shrink back. He had to be lifted up to draw all people, all kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles alike, to himself. So his hour has come for him to die so that the gospel, the grace of God, the love of God can go to the ends of the earth. And here the Greeks are coming, and it triggers that turn. So one more thing here, verse 23, just to notice here. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Again, this is all about the glory of Christ, this series, right? What if those words were on the lips of one of the Caesars? Like, what if one of the Caesars said, the hour has come for, I mean, they called themselves son, the Son of God, okay? The hour has come for me to be glorified. What, what would they have meant? Probably that they were on the brink of some military victory and great expansion of their kingdom, or maybe they were about to, you know, be paraded through the streets to the praise and the fealty of their subjects. So that's what Lord Caesar would have meant. What does the Lord Jesus mean when he says, it's time for the Son of Man to be glorified? Well, point number two. The question is not whether you will die. Verses 24 to 26. So Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So pretty simple agricultural image, right? If wheat is going to grow, the seed needs to fall into the earth and die. It breaks open and breaks down and new life springs up and there's a harvest, bears fruit. So death is necessary to generate life. But death in the grain of wheat does lead to life or fruit or harvest, okay? So Jesus is saying, generally speaking, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it doesn't bear fruit. The only way it will bear fruit is if it dies. So again, death is necessary to generate life. This is kind of a principle that should be probably really clear to us if we stop and think about it for a minute. Think about a friendship. If your friend is in need and you close your heart to that person, what's going to happen to your friendship? especially if you do that repeatedly, it's going to die, right? So if you try to save your life, you'll kill your friendship. Save your comfort, save your time, save your... But if you die, if you give your life, 
you breathe life into that person and into your relationship, right? Or how about a marriage? If a husband is looking at porn, he's going to deaden his relationship with his spouse. If he puts those temptations to death, he breathes life. Or if it's just like you assume each other and don't invest, or you're just kind of dismissive, like if you don't die daily so that you can give yourself, you will deaden the relationship. But if you die daily, you breathe life into that relationship. Same thing with parents and children. If a parent just is so focused on their stuff that they won't stop and die to their agenda to spend time with their child, they're going to deaden that relationship. But if they do die, they're going to give life. So, like the Apostle Paul, this is ministry as well. This is life in the church. If we just save our lives and we don't ever use our gifts and our talents, it actually deadens the church. <laughs> but as people die daily and give their gifts and talents, their, their time, their love, their energy, it makes a church vital and breathes life, right? So Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.12, death is at work in us, but life in you. Paul was laying down his life for the good of the Corinthian church, and death was at work in him, but life was at work in them. So before speaking more specifically about his own death, he continues on in this like general way for those who would follow him. Look at verses 25 and 26. This is not just in relation to him, but anyone who follows him. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, my, the Father will honor him. So I remember um, hearing a biographical message on Adoniram Judson, who was a missionary and just had tremendous suffering in his life. And this biographical sketch, um, it was John Piper that gave it, the last line of the message was, the question is not whether we will die. We're all going to die. But whether we will die in a way that bears much fruit. So we're all going to die. The question is not whether we're going to die. That's a given, right? The question is whether we're going to die in a way that bears much fruit. And that is dependent on whether we die to our selfish, sinful self and live for God, or whether we remain dead to God, kind of stiff-arming him, living for ourselves. So just to make sure that we, we don't hold this out at harm's length, what does this mean? Like when Jesus says, whoever loves his life loses it, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What's it mean to love your life? I mean, just recognize what he is saying, what he's not saying. He's not saying you shouldn't be thankful for the good things in your life. Here, here's a good summary by a guy named McClimont, I think. I don't know how to say his name. Anyway, the loving of this life is another name for the spirit of selfishness, which is unwilling to spend or be spent for any higher object than self-enjoyment and self-aggrandizement, while the hating of it 
denotes that spirit of self-sacrifice which counts nothing in this world too dear to be given up in obedience to to the divine will. So again, if we try to selfishly save our life for ourselves, for our comfort, our safety, our reputation, etc., then we will lose our life forever. But if we trust and follow Jesus, we will hate our life in this world. We will reject the claims of the kind of sovereign, wannabe God self. We'll refuse to seek our will on earth. We've died with Christ. We will desire God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're alive with Christ, and we live for Christ. So verse 26 is another way to say the same thing, just from another angle, different emphasis. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So serving Christ, you can see, is equivalent to hating your life in this world. That could sound like a lot of heaviness, a lot of loss, but recognize we're all going to serve somebody. Bob Dylan was right. So you're going to serve someone or something. We are all, it's, it's like we're all wired for worship. We're all going to worship someone, something. You, just can't, you cannot be a human being and not worship. It's the same thing for service. Some people serve money. They might think that they're free and powerful, but they're actually doing money's bidding. You're a slave of the one you obey. Jesus said it in John 8. So some people serve their hobby or leisure because it's the primary or or, or the only place maybe where they feel alive. Nothing wrong with hobbies or leisure, but if we serve them religiously, that's a problem. Some people serve their work because it's their primary source of identity or security. Some people serve the opinion of others. They're slaves of the opinion of others. Fear of man, people-pleasing. It would be death to lose that group's approval. So whose will and agenda do you follow? Who, Who am I following? Who are you following? Why do you do it? We do it because we want to look good in the eyes of someone. We hate looking bad in the eyes of someone whose opinion really matters. So look at the promise of verse 26. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus is saying, trust me, follow me. You will please the Father in this life by faith. You know, it's, without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes must believe that he is, exists, and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So we can please God in this life by faith, but also we will one day hear the greatest commendation the human ear can ever hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. You were faithful with a little, a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. It's either that's what we're going to hear or depart from me, I never knew you. So we either choose to die, to hate our life, to embrace the shame of following Jesus here in this life, in this world, and we will have, by the grace of God, the smile of God now and forever justified by faith. This is not our doing. It's a gift of God 
because of what Jesus has done, we trust him as our Savior. We are united with him by faith. And then we, by faith, trust and obey, right? And we can please God, the smile of God now and forever. Or we choose to live for ourselves, to love our lives, to reject and avoid the shame and the loss of following Jesus here in this life, in this world. And we will have condemnation. We will be under it now, and it will be meted out forever. So these are sobering words. Jesus is laying out what it looks like to follow him. And he's coming to his hour. He knew he must die, that he would bear much fruit to give life to us, to generate a new people. He didn't save his life. He gave his life to give life. He wanted us to know that life only comes through death. We also must die to live and to live in a way that bears fruit. So Jesus addresses us all as he lives out his hardest, not my will, but yours be done moment. <clears throat> Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies. Unless you hate your life in this world, you're going to lose it. But if you lose it, you'll keep it for eternal life. Okay? So now he's going to speak more specifically of the path that he must walk. So he was speaking generally there. How did Jesus do this? How did he willingly fall into the earth and die? How did he willingly choose the path of the cross? Well, let's consider point number three, the shame and the glory. Um, I'm going to read through most of verses 27 to 41. We're only going to focus on a few parts. Um, but look at verse 27 and, and follow along here. So Jesus said, Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. See, his hour has come to die. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So I have glorified it. Incarnation, baptism, you know, transfiguration. This is my beloved son. Baptism, this is my beloved son. Even just Jesus' works, miracles, was evidence of God's stamp of approval on him, power with him. I have glorified it. I will glorify it again in his death and resurrection. So the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So in one and the same event, Satan is going to be dethroned and the Son of God is going to be enthroned. Satan tried to exalt himself and he's going to be cast out. The Son of God humbled himself and he's lifted up on this shameful cross to die and he was exalted. So, verse 32, And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people, all kinds of people, Jews, Gentiles, every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, to myself. That's, that sounds like John 3. Do you remember it? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. 
So the lifting up on the cross to die that others might live. Verse 33, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. Do you remember, like, there's multiple examples of this, but like Isaiah 9. Unto us a child is born, a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. It's going to go on forever. So they had this expectation of the Messiah. He would be victorious, and, and he would reign forever. But you're saying he's going to be lifted up to die? Who is this son of man? So they misunderstand. They don't believe They had a different expectation. They thought he was going to be more like a Caesar, glorified through victory rather than glorified through shame, willingly embraced shame for us. So look down at verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You know where that's found? Isaiah 53.1. So hang on to that. What's going on in Isaiah 53? You need to remember that. So verse 39, Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, this is back in chapter 6, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Okay, you got to track with me here. If this is the point where you're starting to get like sleepy or uh, zoning out, this is the time to zone back in, okay? So a couple things you got to keep in mind. Why is John pointing to Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6 and talking about Jesus being lifted up? Jesus is talking about being lifted up. This is, this is huge. This is beautiful. There's a couple places in the gospel, I'm sorry, in the book of Isaiah that talk about God being high and lifted up. Remember chapter 6? Isaiah has this vision. The king is high and lifted up and holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his Glory. So he's high and exalted, and Isaiah sees glory, and he's about coming apart at the seams, and then he sees how sinful he is, and he needs atonement. And the flaming one comes with that flaming um, ember, touches his lips, and atones for his sin. Isaiah 53, the servant is going to be lifted up, exalted, right? But then it talks about his suffering. And it talks about atonement. So what's going on? Do you see the crazy thing that's said in John 12, 41? Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Whose glory? Jesus' glory? How could Isaiah have seen Jesus' glory? How's that even possible? What is the book of John all about? Revealing the glory of God through the Word made flesh. 
showing us the glory of God. If you want to see the glory of God, you would think Isaiah 6, high and exalted, he's made the heavens, he's just spun it all with a word, and you know, we see just the train of his robe, and we just want to hit the deck. Yes, that is the glory of God. He's high and lifted up. He's the King of kings. He is the Lord of hosts. He is awesome beyond our greatest comprehension. But if you really want to see the glory of God, Isaiah 40, there's a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and all flesh will see it. All flesh will see his glory. And then chapter 53, the servant is high and lifted up, not as a triumphant Caesar, but lifted up on a cross to make atonement for you and me. If you want to see the glory of God, the, the transcendent, awesome, like, blow our minds glory of God it is most visible in the most shocking shame you can imagine we just sang this is this is crazy you it's it's easy to just kind of get dull to these things we sung the wonderful cross that is so weird that is so weird that's like saying oh the wonderful electric chair Oh, the wonderful death by lethal injection. What in the world are we doing? It's shameful. People didn't sing about the cross. Like, people got uncomfortable in conversation if people brought up the cross. So how is that wonderful? How is it glorious? Well, listen, I've quoted this planting guy a couple times. I'm going to quote him again here. So the fourth gospel finds glory in places where we're not looking. In John 12, death is in the air. The Son of Man will die and fall into the earth in an event so devastating that it will seem to turn creation back into chaos. But Jesus says that this is the hour in which the Son of Man will be glorified. We grope for his meaning. The men and women who love Jesus would see him die on a torture instrument that the Romans had adapted to terrorize their enemies. They would see the Romans take his life and before that, they would see the Romans take his dignity in a public spectacle meant to intimidate anybody with an eye to see or an ear to hear or a heart to tremble at state-sponsored terrorism and the awful suffering it brings. The Romans jammed their crosses into the earth like scarecrows, and every damned one of them proclaimed to the world, Caesar is Lord, and don't you ever forget it. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, says Jesus. How can this be? Being glorified on a cross? Is that like being enthroned on an electric chair? Is it like being honored by a firing squad? And then he says this, The gospel finds glory where we are not looking. How grotesque it seems to us that the gospel should find glory in Jesus' crucifixion. He's lifted up on a cross, almost as if it's the first five feet of his ascension into heaven. But the glory is in it because God's love is all over it. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. I hope we hear the passion in these words. To go to a cross for somebody, your love would have to be fierce. To go to a cross, you would have to be terrifying in the strength of your passion for sinners. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. That's not just a Bible verse. 
That's a cry from the depths. That's almost a battle cry. So he's facing his hour, his death. It's necessary if he's going to bear much fruit. If he tried to save his life, he would lose it, and we would all lose. He gave his life, and we all gained, and he was exalted, like Philippians 2 that Tyler read. And he says, will you follow me? Will you embrace the shame and the death and the loss for the sake of greater gain and fruit and glory? So our death doesn't atone for our sins. Our death is not like Jesus's in that way, okay? We can't do anything to save ourselves, contribute to our own atonement. No, Jesus did that. But if we're going to follow him, we have to die, deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. So this passage ends then with this examination of our hearts, what's underneath our faith, our profession of faith. So last point here, verses 42 to 43. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Why? For they love the glory from man more than the glory from God. So, first off, I think there could be a little bit of a play on words here. They didn't love the glory from God. Wasn't he standing right in front of them? They hated him. They rejected him, and they hung him on a tree. But also, they wanted, they loved the approval the acceptance among people rather than the approval, the acceptance from God, the glory from God. Well done, good and faithful servant that only comes by grace and trusting in Jesus. So we must care most what God thinks of us, not what others think of us. It's not a little thing. This is huge. Jesus earlier in chapter 5, verse 44, he said, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So do you see the, the stuff underneath this profession in verses 42 and 43? Many believed, many of these authorities believed, quote-unquote, but for fear of the Pharisees, they didn't confess so that they wouldn't be put out of the synagogue because they love the glory from man more than the glory from God. There's a lot there, okay? So let's just put it into a dialogue between one of the disciples, Bartholomew, and Asher, a random, you know, other person that's there. So, so do you believe in him? Let's say Bartholomew is one of the disciples that doesn't get much press. He's talking to his friend Asher. Do you believe in him? Well, yes, it's hard to deny these things. You know, I mean, he's done them. We've seen them. So then Bartholomew asked, then why, why won't you be open about saying you're his follower? Asher says, well, I'm afraid of getting kicked out of the synagogue. Remember John 9, the blind man? His parents, they didn't want to get kicked out of the synagogue. Anybody that aligned with Jesus is going to get kicked out. Bartholomew asks again, well, what are you so afraid of? What's so important to you? How, how would he say this? I, I just, I can't face the rejection of my people. 
Who would I be? Where would I belong? So what do we make of this? Like, in the Gospel of John, there's, plenty, there's a few places where it seems like people believe, but I eh, don't really believe. Like Nicodemus, eh, not sure. Like, it's kind of ambiguous. You wish it was clearer. It's almost like this third ambiguous ca- category. Did they really believe? Can you really believe and love the glory for man more than the glory of God? Like, was this at least a step in the right direction? Like, why can't the Bible be more definitive and, you know, polar in these categories and evaluations? But here's the thing. Don't we see this kind of ambiguity all the time? We can want to tie it up in a neat little box, but you see this kind of ambiguity. You might see this kind of ambiguity in your own heart. So what do we make of it? It could be unbelief in faith's clothing. It could also be belief in its embryonic and yet strangled form. And it hears these things and says, this is dangerous. Like, I don't want to be a slave to my fear of people. Lord, help me fear you. Help me love your glory. Do you see? So you look at this. You look at the belief of these authorities. Will it survive? Will it die? This is the kind of, I'm not sure it could go either way that we see all the time. What is it for Joshua Harris and Marty Sampson? Are they really believers who are drifting? Or are they false believers showing their true colors? Like Demas, he had Paul fooled. He was commended in one letter. Later on, he's departed because he loved this world. What is under the surface of your faith, your confession, and mine? It is eternally important what you fear and what you love and whose glory you most deeply desire. The Gospel of John is here to show us the superior glory of God in the face, the beautiful face of our Savior, Jesus, so that we believe. Kids from VBS, let's go. What's this all about? These are written that you may believe. Anybody? (laughs) That Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So to show us his glory so that we want him and we want the honor and glory that comes from God that makes all the honor and glory that you could obtain on this earth just look like husks and ashes. So if we're going to test our faith, and the Bible says, like 2 Corinthians, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. We shouldn't do this all the time, especially if you tend to be like, hyper-navel-gazing type of person. Maybe this isn't healthy for you, but when we're trembling, when we see other people make shipwreck and we go, ah, what do I do? You cling to Jesus. (laughs) He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is our hope. He is our Savior. He is our everything. But we should also look underneath the surface. What glory, whose glory do we love, do we want? Because that's going to govern and shape our fears, which is going to have all kinds of impact on our trajectory. So let's just close here with some time to look in and prayerfully ask the Lord to shine the searchlight in our heart by His Spirit. And if there's stuff that you see, if you need to talk to somebody about it or pray with somebody, I'm certainly happy to do that. 
and then the music team is going to come up and we're going to sing a wonderful song reminding ourselves of the gospel. (laughs) If we do see fear of man, if we do see love of the glory of the things of this earth, we can run to Jesus again (laughs) and just drink deeply of his grace and be strengthened because we want to follow him wholeheartedly. We want him to keep us all the way to the end and we want to live lives that bear much fruit. So we need his grace if we're going to do that. So let's just quietly, prayerfully examine our hearts as the music team comes up and prepares to close us in a song.